The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with another trailblazing innovator. This time, on the topic of employee benefits. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Eric Hellman, Chief Strategy Officer of Hodges Mace. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you having me today. Well, we really appreciate you making the time. Before we start our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background? Sure, Joe. I got a completely useless undergraduate SEC school, spent a couple <laughs> years in the military, a dozen years in the IBM company, and since then I have had the pleasure to run a series of startups and turnarounds, most recently focused in the area of employee benefits and helping employers, employees, brokers, and insurance companies come together to deliver more benefits for less money. Good deal. And that's a great segue. Could you take the next couple of minutes to give our audience a 10,000-foot overview of the work you guys do at Hodges Mace? Hodges Mace is a combination of three companies really designed to put together a benefits delivery platform. Many employers and their brokers and insurance companies spend an awful lot of time designing a benefits package Every year, in response to healthcare inflation, their employees' needs, the current state of what's going on, and benefits. But unfortunately, benefits are confusing. People don't understand their benefits and they don't spend enough time making good decisions about their benefits. So, Hodges Mace is a combination of people, process, and technology designed to help deliver those benefits automating and facilitating transactions between employers and employees, employees and insurance companies, brokers and employers, all designed to help people improve their understanding of their benefits so that they make better decisions, that they appreciate their benefits, and that those provide the financial protection that their families need. Perfect. Eric, you've recently made four predictions for employee benefits for 2016. I'd like to cover each one. Could you start by telling us what you expect in the area of eligibility and enrollment? Uh, yes, the, the construct for our predictions, Joe, are really around the changes brought upon by the Affordable Care Act. Prior to the Affordable Care Act, employers really had little guidance on who they had to offer benefits to, what they had to offer, and how much they charged employees for them. But as you probably know, given the Affordable Care Act, now all of a sudden the government has a standard of who has to be provided benefits, specifically all employees above 30 hours a week, what the government calls full-time employees, what they have to be provided, acceptable insurance has to cover essential health benefits and has to be over a particular value called 60% actuarial value, and then how much they could charge for them. So since 2010, we've worked with over 3,000 employers to help them understand what is going on with the market relative to these three guideposts. 
with regard to eligibility, what we've seen is that prior to healthcare reform, nearly every industry was already providing healthcare to its employees above 30 hours. Now, there were some exceptions to that, multi-site retail, non-union manufacturing, service industries. But it's interesting that post-healthcare reform, we actually have seen a decrease in what we call offer rates. Offer rates are the percentage of employers that offer insurance to their employees. So for the 10 years leading up to healthcare reform, they were pretty steady at around 79%. From 2013 to 2014, we actually saw for the first time ever a drop in those offer rates. Your second prediction is around the benefits offered. What are you predicting there? Well, again, in the context of healthcare reform, the employer, in order to avoid penalties, had to provide coverage to all these employees that was at least 60% actuarial value. Now, that's just a, that's a term that basically says that once you total up the deductibles, the co-pays, the out-of-pockets, all those things together, the average person, the plan would pay 60% of their claims. When we went out in the country and did analysis, what we figured out is that employers on average were providing coverage at 83% actuarial value, significantly higher than what the law demanded. However, over the 10 years prior to health care reform, the average actuarial value had dropped from the mid-90s down to the low 80s. So as we deal with healthcare inflation that just continues, it's somewhat abated. I mean, it's not double-digit inflation every year, but even single-digit inflation on a very large number is difficult for an employer's stomach. So we expect that employers will continue to degrade their plans, lower their actuarial value as they move closer to that 60% number. However, we're also dealing in a world where we have nearly full employment. So employers are struggling to deal with healthcare inflation, but also make sure that their plans are attractive. And uh, as my economics professors uh, always told me, when you regulate something, you typically get less of it. So what we anticipated, it's already happening, we think more of it's going to happen, is that prior to healthcare reform, you got your healthcare, if you will, in a major medical plan. Increasingly, we think that you'll get less and less of your health care reimbursed through the major medical plan, and you will begin to get health care reimbursed, if you will, or financed elsewhere, a standalone telemedicine packages, standalone critical illness, accident, etc. You get health care reimbursed, if you will, or financed elsewhere. Those policies are not computed against the value of this Cadillac tax which, although it's been delayed a couple of years, will serve to set the ceiling on what employers will offer. So healthcare reform, the ceiling is set by the Cadillac tax, and the floor is set by 60% actuarial value. And you'll see employers offering less coverage through major medical as they navigate healthcare inflation. Wow. This next one is near and dear to my heart, Eric. What about what you're seeing in terms of affordability? Affordability is an interesting one. I actually read a New York Times article this morning, and one of the people who commented made a comment about how their employer said the plan was affordable, but it wasn't affordable for them. Here are the facts. Much like actuarial value or the the what, where employers were providing 83% and all that was demanded was 60%, the threshold for affordability under the Affordable Care Act is that a plan 
for employee-only coverage cannot exceed 9.5%. It gets indexed with inflation, but roughly 9.5% of somebody's adjusted gross household income. When we went across the country and looked at what people were actually providing, we found that they were actually providing coverage for around 3.6%. The average employee contribution was actually significantly cheaper than what the Affordable Care Act allowed. So what you've seen is people increase that contribution, employers increase the contribution as a way to control against healthcare inflation. Now, the other thing that gets a significant amount of press is the fact that there's no affordability measure for dependent coverage. Prior to health care reform, employers were, if you will, holding employee contributions to that about 19% of the total premium for employees only and about 28% for families. We've seen the amount of required contribution from family coverage moved significantly up since the passage of health care reform. And we believe that that's influenced by the fact that while there is a standard for employee only, there's not a standard for family coverage. And we would expect that to continue. Well, let me give you another piece of data. I'm a small business owner. And prior to Obamacare, my premium for my family was less than $500. And my deductibles and co-pays were way more than affordable. On the average, is $75 for a copay, never more than $100. That plan far exceeded any gold plan that any plan offers today. Now I've gone from the gold to the silver to the bronze. I'm now in the bronze plan, paying almost $2,000 for a family, and my deductibles are more like $175, $350, $225. And what I worry about is every single small business owner, this is what's happened to them. We place the people that are really the growth to me of America. Am I going to invest to have more employees to pay health care at this extravagant cost? Well, the answer for me has been no. I haven't hired a single employee in five years. I've found other ways to grow to avoid that. And we're going to have to figure out how to not squeeze the small business owners if we want growth back in, in this country, I believe. Well, you, you really provide an excellent snapshot of really what we call the fourth point of the compass or, or where are the alternatives, right? Because I, I've spent most of the time talking about what large employers have to do. Now, a large employer, is, as defined by healthcare reform, is somebody above 50 full-time equivalents, right? What they call apl- applicable large employers. But the marketplace that you're talking about, the small business and individual marketplace, those marketplaces have been also significantly affected by healthcare reform. Folks who, like yourself, perhaps used to benefit from an individual policy, for example, that was medically underwritten, your premiums were much less prior to healthcare reform. There's a lot of press around how good it is for the fact that big bad insurance companies can no longer underwrite pre-existing medical conditions. As someone who has relatives who are in those situations, I completely understand the benefits of that. However, on the other side, you can kind of look at it as prior to healthcare reform, insurance companies had the opportunity to, if you wanted to, you could share your health history. And if you were one of those 79% of the population that wasn't likely to consume a lot of health care, they could offer you a significant discount. 
think about it like progressive where they they'll let you put the little chip in your car and if you're a safe driver they'll offer you a discount well healthcare reform did away with that right so now what we see is everybody's premium the healthy and the sick had to go up to take care of that now the other challenge and this is a challenge that is structural and people are just beginning to understand it but it is our prediction for the fourth quadrant is that the employer provided healthcare system offers government subsidized healthcare now what do i mean by that meaning that because the amount that your employer pays for healthcare and the amount that you deduct out of your check are both pre-tax the government is actually subsidizing healthcare when it's purchased through the employers however that tax if you will there that tax benefit from a tax policy perspective, is really a regressive tax policy. What do I mean by that? Meaning the more you make, the higher your tax bracket, the more valuable that is to you, right? If you bought insurance in the individual market, in the private market, outside of an employer prior to healthcare reform, you couldn't write it off on your taxes, with, with some small exceptions. So what they did in healthcare reform is they said, listen, that's not fair. What we're going to do is we're going to create the opportunity to have subsidies in the individual market. But when they created those subsidies, they flipped the tax policy on its head. Rather than it being the most valuable for people in high tax brackets, on the exchanges, you get the most subsidy if you're in a low tax bracket, right? So what we believe will continue to happen is that both employees and small employers will begin to look at how they structure their employment so that they can take advantage of the best place to get their health care. So what does that mean for you? Well, that might mean for you that you grow with more part-time workers as opposed to full-time workers. Because I would share with you, if I'm the head of a household in a lower income, 200% of the federal poverty level and down, and I've got a family, the price of employer-provided health care is probably prohibitive for me. And if my employer provides me, if I'm full-time and they provide me affordable and acceptable coverage, I cannot get subsidized coverage on the exchange. So wouldn't it make sense for me if healthcare was very important to me and I wanted coverage for me and my entire family, it might be more important for me to get two jobs at 28 hours a week, especially if the minimum wage grows to $15, right? Because with those two jobs, I can qualify for subsidized coverage for me and my entire family on the exchange, and I've optimized my labor in a way that all the economics make sense. We think there's going to be more and more of that if the current set of laws and regulations are not changed. Wow. A lot to think about there. And I appreciate you closing out our fourth prediction there. For our next question, what choices do employees want? and or expect in their benefits packages today? Yeah, it's an interesting question because one of the things that we're seeing, and it's really experience brought around by these things called private healthcare exchanges, where an employer basically says, I'm going to give you a lot more choices and, and then I'm going to give you a set amount of money and you make your choices. The behavior we're seeing on employees is that they are far more price sensitive when they're given these choices and visibility to their own dollars than what the employer used to force on them. Let me say that a different way. 
if I give you a choice, and I'll use the language you used, which is public exchange language, of a gold, silver, bronze plan, and I give you your own money, employees are far more likely to buy the bronze plan and have a low premium than they used to be choosing a bronze plan when the employer offered them three plans. So employees are exposing themselves to more potential healthcare risk, but they're keeping more money in their paycheck. And so part of the drive towards private exchanges is for employers to not make these decisions on behalf of employees, because if you think about it, the employer is allocating a portion of the compensation dollar for benefits. You know, they're not doing that to make all their employees angry, right? They're doing that to attract and retain a highly productive workforce. But I don't know about you, but the, the last time I can count that I was in an open enrollment meeting at a major employer where the premiums weren't going up and the coverage was going down and employees were a little less than satisfied, that's an unenviable position for an employer. Long answer to your short question, we think that while employees say that they want platinum coverage, the real challenge is that the definition of health insurance in our country right now, good insurance pays for everything, doesn't cost me much out of my paycheck, and lets me go to anybody I want to go to. Bad insurance is anything that does the opposite of that, right? And yet, every other insurance product that we have, whether it's house insurance or auto insurance or et cetera, people make decisions of how much risk they want to be exposed to based upon their needs. People talk about consumerism in healthcare, really about the consumption of healthcare. I think the greatest trend is consumerism in healthcare based upon the policy you buy. That is where consumerism can have its greatest effect. Eric, you've hit on a point that I don't think 99.9% of Americans have appreciated. My costs have gone up in healthcare, but the worst part is, and not necessarily for me because I've done well and saved my pennies, and if I had something catastrophic, I could probably get through it. 99% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and as they made those choices the last six or seven years to go from the gold plans down to the bronze plans, they're bearing risk. It used to be borne by companies that have lots of actuarial scientists that understand how to bear risk. We've moved all the risk in healthcare from the government to individuals, and one by one, individuals are going to start going bankrupt when they experience bad health situations. And in the meantime, they're making it worse because the cost of their health care has gone up so much that they're not doing preventative health care. They're only going if they absolutely have to go because the deductible is 200 bucks. And I'd be interested in your perspective in that whole risk shifting. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Now, there's a couple of facts that are important, I think, to understand relative to risk shifting. And that is, you and I both called it risk shifting. It's amazing to me how much in the popular press people call it cost shifting. It's only cost shifting if you have a claim. And then here's what's important about that. Healthcare consumption in the United States is way beyond the Pareto principle. It's not an 80-20 rule. It's a 14% of the people consume 90% of the healthcare in the United States, right? So for many employees, I would argue it's a fairly logical decision. If I'm living paycheck to paycheck and I'm likely not to have a healthcare claim, meaning I don't have kind of a known 
known issue, right? And I have the opportunity to, no questions asked, retrade my healthcare decision every year. I would argue it makes pretty much sense for me to buy a fairly minimal plan, right? Because if I have something unexpected happen to me, it's not like I'm not going to get access to the healthcare system, right? I'm going to get access. Now, I may have a $6,000 exposure, right? But the challenge is how much more would have I had to have paid for the slight possibility that I would have that 6,000 exposure. Again, known versus unknown risk. This is why, looping back to the second prediction, that we think more and more of healthcare will be consumed, quote, and financed outside of major medical policies. A $6,000 deductible policy still has to provide me free preventative care under the Affordable Care Act. So there's really no excuse. Now, what, what we're seeing employers doing is, outside of the major medical plan, offering telemedicine, for example, and offering telemedicine without a copay, so that their employees, rather than losing work and not being productive because they had a sinus infection, can call somebody up, get a ZPAC recommended, and they're, they're off to the races. We also believe that Rather than buying a low deductible plan, if you're my son, 29 years old and bulletproof, it might be more appropriate for you to buy an accident plan. Because if you're likely to be exposed to a $1,500 emergency room visit, it's more likely to be because of an accident than it is to be because of some long-term chronic illness. That's an example of where we're seeing how people finance their health care we believe because of Affordable Care Act and healthcare inflation, it's going to move away from major medical. Major medical is going to be catastrophic care. And everything else probably should be financed in another way. But all of that said, Joe, you're absolutely correct. And that is that whether in retirement or pre-retirement, the data suggests the number one thing that people are not financially prepared for is exposure to medical consumption that's not financed. There's so much more to talk about here, Eric, but we're running against the clock. Before I let you go, where can people go to learn more about Hodges Mace? The best place to go is HodgesMace.com, H-O-D-G-E-S-M-A-C-E.com. Reach out to one of our professionals and see how we can help your employer deliver their benefits in a much more effective way. Awesome, Eric. I hope we can bring you back soon because there's five or six things I want to talk more about, especially the private benefit exchanges. Joe, I'd appreciate the invite anytime. All right. It's great to have you. Thanks for stopping by, sharing your great wisdom with us. Have a great day. You too. That wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Eric Hellman, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare. <laughs>